Presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a special edition of The Audible. We are recording it a day earlier than usual. The playoff announcement was just uh, released on ESPN maybe an hour ago, and Bruce is about to run to the airport. So this is going to be a brief, briefer than usual edition, but we're going to hit. Let's just, right off the top, Bruce, it's Oklahoma for the fourth playoff spot facing Alabama in the Orange Bowl, Clemson and Notre Dame, two versus three in the Cotton Bowl. There was quite a lot of debate, at least on ESPN, after the SEC championship game until a minute before the announcement that it should be Georgia, not Oklahoma or Ohio State. How do you feel about the selection? I feel okay. You know, I I didn't think it would be ideal to have Georgia in there with two losses, one of them being by 20 points to LSU. Now, look, this is the part where it gets tricky. If I ask you, Stu, who do you think the four best teams in college football are? I don't want to hear about like what Vegas thinks or whatever, but like who do you think the four best teams are? And do you think Georgia's in there over both Notre Dame and Oklahoma? Yeah, I think if you're just like subjectively saying, okay, I've watched these teams play, who do I think are the best teams? I think Alabama, Clemson, and Georgia are the three best teams, and then there's a drop-off after that to Notre Dame and Oklahoma. But that, that, and, a drop, that and even more of a drop-off to Ohio State? No, no sorry. I think there's a drop-off to Notre Dame, Oklahoma, and Ohio State. and But I do think there's a separation there. So I'm saying I feel pretty strongly Georgia's one of the three best teams, especially given... I mean, I think people forgot pretty quickly after that game just how untouchable we thought Alabama was through 12 games, and they dominated them for three quarters. Of course, blew it at the end. But um, again, that's just me watching football, saying who I think are the best teams. If I'm saying who should be in the playoff, Oklahoma. Yeah, I, I get into this a lot, too, with best versus most deserving. And I think some of the things that gets frustrating to me is just – and look, I, I genuinely feel like I have no dog in this fight, you know, it's or whatever. These are just – you know, we cover the teams and everything. You know some of the people involved. But uh, I get why for diehard fans this can be such an excruciating, frustrating process uh, having said that, I, the part that I don't like about this more than anything is when it started to teeter into the, like the discussion about a while, a couple weeks ago about Notre Dame versus Michigan. The game happened. Notre Dame won that game. It's not like the records were the same or anything like that. So that's the part where I don't love how best versus most deserving. If the results happen on the field and the records are similar, then I don't think. You can you should just say, hey, well, this team's playing better now or I just think they're a better team or Vegas says this. I don't care what Vegas says. Vegas told me that Alabama should have handily beaten Ohio State back in the Sugar Bowl. Vegas had Alabama as a two touchdown favorite over Georgia just the other day. So thank you. Thank you. That's seven. Yeah. So and also just to throw in your like best versus most deserving part, I would put Ohio State over 
I would put Ohio State to be honest over uh, not just Al- uh, not just Notre Dame and Oklahoma. I'd put them over Georgia as well. I think if Dwayne Haskins and that offense gets cranked up, they're a dangerous team. I get it. They give up a bunch of big plays, and that's a concern. But they got a high-powered passing attack, and uh, I saw how they shredded Michigan, and that was about as impressive as anybody else has played. So, again, I'm not saying I think Ohio State should be in the playoff. They have a 29-point loss and is a full body of work, and until we have an 18-playoff, which, as I've said, I am I am in favor of, I think that's what we get. And um, So, you wait, know, just to be clear, you're saying you think subjectively you think Ohio State is one of the four best teams, but you're okay with them not being in it. Exactly what I'm saying. I think uh, if you look at Oklahoma's body of work, they had one loss to Texas, and they avenged that loss. I get their defense isn't isn't very good, but their offense is superb, and everybody has flaws. You start pointing this out. I wanted to kind of put this out before we got to decide who the fourth team was or before Reese Davis announced who the fourth team was on Sunday morning. People kind of crapping all over Notre Dame. I'm sorry. You know, Notre Dame has no losses. They played a good schedule. They beat a good Michigan team. And then they beat some other good teams. And people are like, well, yeah, they're really not that good. Stanford's not that good. Syracuse isn't that good. Northwestern isn't that good. You know what? You can crap on a lot of other teams' second-best win or third-best win. They didn't lose by 20 points. They didn't lose by 29 points. So, you know what? I get it. I don't think Notre Dame is going to win that game. But if you're just going to say who you don't think is going to win – then, you know, we're just going to might as well have the preseason poll and just decide who goes in. So I probably watched ESPN's talking heads more closely in the last 24 hours than I certainly would during the season. And two things that I found kind of bizarre. One, and look, we, I think we both respect the heck out of Kirk Herbstreet, and he's entitled to his opinion. But man, was he out on a limb with Georgia. Not only did he think they should be in, he thought they should move up to number three after a loss. And then the other thing is nobody on that set has any respect for Notre Dame, as you were just saying. I heard Reese Davis at one point say he would begrudgingly include them in their top, his top four. As you said, they spent weeks trying to convince people Michigan should be ahead of them. I'm sure that will cause some conspiracy theories. Oh, Notre Dame is NBC's team, not ESPN's. I don't think it's that. I just think they just don't think Notre Dame is that good. And like I said, I do think there's a drop-off from Alabama, Clemson, Georgia to Notre Dame, but there's no other team out there that to me is clearly better than Notre Dame, and I also think their resume is better than people seem to realize. They actually have Notre Dame finished the season with three top 25 wins. That's the same as Oklahoma. That's, I believe, one more than Clemson. I think all but three of the teams Notre Dame played were bowl eligible, and they went undefeated. There's really no argument there. We'll see how they do against Clemson, but to say they don't belong is just... I mean, if you're going to say the games matter and, you know, how dare they even suggest Georgia should be in there, they lost, they had their chance, then you can't turn around and say Notre Dame doesn't belong in there because the games matter and they got it done. Yeah, I'm with you. And again, I, I, I think Kirk's the best at studio analysis in college football. I don't agree with everything everybody says. In this case, I was, yeah, I mean, I think the, also the idea of having a two-loss team from another conference where you'd have two teams in from the same conference and you'd snub some other conference champs i just don't think that's a road the committee wants to get get in on i mean it just uh i, I don't know I, I just think it's a bad place i mean what happened if if lsu had had beaten texas a&m handily you know they have the 20 point win and they would be a two loss team I, I just think that that's something that 
I don't know. I, I just think the games have to have the most weight. They just do. And wins and losses, the name of the game is, I, again, hate to quote Arizona State's now head coach, but you know, you have to win the games. That's what matters most. And uh, it's not what Vegas says and all that other BS. It's those results. And if you, if you want to have something like that in, then move to eight teams. Then move to move to eight teams where you have all the conference champs from the from the power five and then three at larges. And then I think you can do that. But it's too small to just kind of to go down the road or or who Nick Saban least wants to face. I just I just don't think that needs to be the barometer. But I think what happens and I think a lot of folks, especially online, look at this and they go where they see conspiracy theories. I don't think it's that I don't think it's that's that um, high level. I think what it really is, is. Human nature is when you see and cover the teams firsthand and you're around them a lot, you either think you have an inflated view of them one way or the other because you eyeball it and you're around it. And you either think these teams are really, really good or you see them and you think, wow, they're worse than people realize. And I think that's what happens where the flaws kind of get magnified. And I, I just think that's kind of kind of what happens more than anything else. I don't think it's a coincidence, by the way, with with Herb Street. You know, he called that USC Notre Dame game. He the, his last impression of Notre Dame was, you know, one of their less, you know, not one of their more impressive performances of the season. I don't know off the top of my head when he saw Oklahoma, but there's a very good chance that when he did, they gave up a lot of points and yards. Give Oklahoma credit. So we're going to revisit these title games just a little bit. But the Big 12 title game, for all the flack that defense has taken, defense stepped up and helped win them the game in the fourth quarter. Held Oklahoma when the game the game was tied going in the fourth quarter, right? They hold Oklahoma, they hold Texas to a punt, and then of course that safety, and there, there you went from there. Obviously, Kyler Murray had a sensational game. By the way, do we think Kyler Murray's now going to be the Heisman winner? I do. I do too. Uh, am I out of line for thinking this that if you turned in your Heisman ballot before Sunday, you shouldn't have a Heisman vote? I think if you turned your Heisman ballot in before, I, I don't even know why they even send it out before Sunday. I also wish they'd give you a little more time to do it. You have to vote by Monday. I'd love to, I, you know, we do those Heisman straw polls during the season. I'll be honest, I don't put too much thought into it. I, I do sit down and really think about my actual Heisman vote. It matters. I'd like to look at everybody one more time. And not just the quarterbacks, by the way. Is there a case for Christian Wilkins to be on my ballot? Is there a case for Quinn Williams to be on my ballot? But I'll tell you what, I went into the weekend thinking the only way Tua, who is basically led wire to wire. The only way he's not going to win the Heisman is if Alabama loses. Alabama won, and I do think he's not going to win the Heisman now because in the biggest game of the season, he had his worst game, and then, of course, he got injured, and Jalen Hurst comes in. i got to talk about this for a second. I know that we've already moved on to the playoff, but that was one of the most compelling college football games I have watched in a long time. You name the storyline or the, the element that you can throw into a huge college football game like that, it, it was in there. And, I mean, obviously the symmetry of Jalen Hurts coming back in, same game, same, same opponent, same stadium. Jalen Hurts now is the one who comes in after being benched the first time around and leads them, leads them to victory. Now, I will say that fake punt call. Yeah, I want to ask you about this. So I'm in studio at Fox. I'm doing the Big Ten pregame, Big Ten title game pregame show, and about to tee up. I had an Urban Meyer conversation, and I'm supposed to go on with Rob Stone after to talk about Urban Meyer's future and and a lot of things Buckeyes. And I'm in the studio, so the sound is off, and I'm off to the side. The other guys are on the set, and I'm watching that, and I'm like, wait, they just went for a fake, and it just doesn't add up to me. And it's one of those things where to see it without 
you're kind of been a little like incredulous because it just obviously it didn't work. When you saw that, and in addition to you know what the context for, from Gary Daniels and everything else was there, what was the rationale behind it? I mean, Kirby Smart never even gave a good rationale for it afterward. He said, "We're we're going for the win. We're there to go for the win." Well, the best way to win that game at that point would have been to punt the ball away and make Jalen Hurts drive 80 yards instead. Because the thing is, Jalen Hurts, rightfully so, we're giving him all kinds of credit for yesterday, but. His two drives, he didn't have to go very far. Uh, one of them, obviously, Tua had already started. And then they just teed it up for him at midfield. If it had been fourth and two, maybe that's a better idea then. It was fourth and 11. They tried to sneak Justin Fields out there to be the up back. He had never appeared on a special teams play all season. So, shocker, Alabama, who, by the way, was in punt safe to begin with, figured out what was coming. It was just, it was such a doomed play from the start. And so, you know, if you had punted it there, and assuming it didn't get blocked, he would have had to drive. Now, he, he could have dri- driven far enough to set them up for a field goal, but remember, what's Alabama's Achilles heel? Like, I'd feel a lot better about Alabama having to kick a field goal to win than giving them short field to score a touchdown. And then, if you can send it to overtime, again, huge advantage there. I know... George's kicker missed a, a, a pretty easy one at one point in the game, but for the most part, he's pretty reliable, and Alabama's is not. So all the credit in the world to Jalen Hurts, who, I mean, I think we all know the story, right? He could have transferred. He could have sold. He stayed loyal. He comes in. He gets the chance. He delivers. But I think Kirby in that decision, I mean, frankly, I can't say it cost them an SEC championship because the game was tied and they still would have had to win the game. But, man, what a brutal... What a brutal way for Georgia to lose on the heels of having lost to Alabama 11 months ago in brutal, brutal fashion. I mean, my heart kind of goes out to Georgia fans right now. I cannot imagine a more agonizing way to lose those two games. They thought, obviously, maybe there's some hope for them to make in the playoff. They did not. So, But if there's one thing that I think is crystal clear at this point, there is not much separating mighty Alabama and mighty Georgia right now in terms of talent level, you know, just where they are as a program, because that's two right down to the wire games. Alabama and Georgia, these two games, the national championship game and this one, 290 total plays, Alabama led for nine of them and won both games. Well, that's probably Georgia's biggest argument to get into the playoff. And obviously it's not going to not going to hold up. But if I'm a Georgia fan, I know this isn't that much consolation right now, as well as the recruiting and the mindset that nobody's intimidated by the crimson tide in Athens, Georgia, where it matters most. And that bodes well for the future. So So how did that game make you feel about Alabama now going into a semifinal against obviously a very explosive Oklahoma team? Nick Saban on ESPN said to an ankle sprain. High ankle sprain. High ankle sprain. He said two weeks. A two-week deal, yeah. That seems kind of optimistic for a high ankle sprain. I wouldn't be surprised if it's... Just a little bit longer than that, but it, you know it's four weeks until the game, so I assume I lo- he'll be starting in that game. Um, and, Mark, we- and, Mar- and probably even as as much significant, Marquise Brown from Oklahoma also expected to be fine, according to ESPN playoff show. I mean, look, I love the matchup between Kyler Murray and Lincoln Riley against the Nick Saban defense. With I don't know a month, whatever we're talking about, three three and a half weeks to get ready. That's going to be fun. I'm not picking Oklahoma to win that. But that'll be a fun matchup. It's a matchup that we really don't get enough of. Like, I remember 2011, uh, when it was Alabama-LSU the second time. I mean, I would have loved to have seen, that was the Oklahoma State team with uh, Whedon and Blackman 
I would have rather seen them go against the SEC team with the good defense. So now we're getting that opportunity to see the most powerful offense in college football with the likely Heisman Trophy winner against you know a team in Alabama that has you know, one of the most respected defenses in the country. I think that um, it would be silly to think they're going to hold Oklahoma to 17 points. Oklahoma is going to score some points. They're going to move the ball. I do think Kyler Murray is going to face pressure like he's never seen before. But the other thing is I just hats off to Oklahoma for playing a little bit better defensively the last two weeks, but that part of the game could get pretty ugly. But you never know. Four-week layoff, Tua's health is in question. You never know. Stu, uh, while that was going on, some very big coaching news. uh, As we reported at the Athletic, Bill Snyder is retiring. That is finally happening. It had been long rumored for the past couple of weeks. He made that program. I mean, his literally name is on the bu- on the building and everything around there. Uh, just a legendary career. When I say Bill Snyder to you, what's going through your mind? I mean, legendary career and still to this day, probably the, the most miraculous turnaround job of any program in, in the modern history of college football. Now, the second time around, I think what he did when he first got there to come back and get them back to the top of the Big 12, they won the uh, Big 12 in 2012 was also a remarkable coaching job. But I also don't think, I think we can agree that it kind of plateaued from there, five and seven this season. We'll find out the details here, but I'm just glad this is, that this seems like this is going to be a fairly, a smoother departure than was feared for some time. I mean, you saw it with uh, Bobby Bowden in particular. You know, sometimes the guy, the coach who, the legendary coach who, can't be told no, is just going to dig his heels in and stay until he can't coach anymore. That's not what's happening here. You know, he's getting out and somebody else can come in and uh, and write the ship. Of course, now there's the question of who the next coach will be. Yeah. And, uh, you know, from my understanding, there is a lot of interest for Seth Luttrell, who is a at North Texas, Mike Leach guy, Bob Stoops guy. You know, I'd be curious why he would want to make that move if he does want to make that move because he's still got Mason fine. who's a terrific quarterback. That's a pretty good job. You know, maybe I would expect more bigger coaching jobs to open up next year. A couple other names, Chris Kleiman, who is 66 and six, which is ridiculous at uh, FCF North Dakota state. That's where the AD at K state came from. Jim Levitt, who worked at, at uh, K state and spent a lot of time there and is pretty connected there. I think there'll be some interest in him. And from what I understand, there'll be a little more of a, of a wide open search than that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a, uh, an interesting path to get here. Obviously people know the story about how Bill Snyder wanted his son, Sean, to get, get the job. Uh, there wasn't much support for that internally. And I do think after how the disastrous Ron Prince run was that he did a really good job building it back up. And um, it was a unique place and everything like that. But as you said, I mean, for people want more about Bill Snyder and, and his legacy there, Max Olson's got a column that's going up now on, on the athletic. They should check that out. So we'll see which direction they go. It's gonna, never easy to follow a legend, though, still. It's never easy to follow a legend. It's a little bit easier when the legend isn't going out on top. I think we can agree with that. You know, a similar comparison recently would be Frank Beamer, I guess. It didn't get like bad towards the end of his reign, but he had, they had clearly, you know, fallen off. I think they had one year where they were lucky to get to six and six. And that was about as smooth a transition as you can get. Now, fans there aren't particularly thrilled with Justin Fuente these days, but, you know, I, 
I think that would be the case no matter who had come before him. You know, they just they didn't have a good team this season. So, look, the last time this happened, it did not go well. The fans totally were not on board with Ron Prince, and that's why Bill Snyder came back to save the day. So uh, it'll be important that this next coach, I'm not saying, you know, it's tough. The coach needs to establish his own identity. He can't try to replicate everything exactly the way Bill Snyder did it. But you also don't want to be that guy that comes in and tries to blow the whole place up and and ticks off the former players. And the example I'm thinking of is Rich Rodriguez when he got to Michigan. You know, I don't think Mike Riley, Nebraska, particularly was particularly well received. It's a it's a careful thing you got to tread. But do you think it's considered a desirable job? I think it is for some people who have connections to the place. I'm not sure if I would say that for a lot of other guys. Again, following a legend, it's a tough job there. I mean. You know, whenever I think of certainly what what Matt Campbell's done at Iowa State, I mean, you only get three non-conference games. You can one thing that Bill Snyder did better than anybody was, especially when he built the place, not not even so much in the second go round, but he hit at a ridiculously high level success rate with junior college guys, and that really helped him get it cranked up. Obviously, the walk-on program helped too. But it's a tough job. I mean, it was a tough job anyway. And it's, a, it's always tough to follow a legend. So I think it's desirable. I don't know if guys who really don't have a connection to the place or the region, if they're going to be go, going, yeah, that's what I want. Because I think guys who are hot coaching commodities know that this is probably going to be a slow cycle and that next year it'll, get, it'll be a lot more fertile for opportunity. So I think there'll be a little more a little more picky or choosy on it. I think the best way, there were so many other things from the weekend that we could get to because you just don't have time to, and I think the best way to do it would be to do some shout-outs. What do you have in mind, Stu? Well, it just seems unfair, as it always is for UCF, that we would totally ignore the fact that they just completed yet another undefeated season, that they did it with a backup quarterback, that they came back from 17 down against Memphis, uh, heading to a New Year's Six Bowl. You will know which one by the time you listen to this. I mean, there's other, uh, there's a lot of people I can give a shout out to, but I just want to make sure I'm giving UCF its proper credit. Uh, I'm sure they're not thrilled that they were totally disregarded in the playoff debate. Uh, but hey, go out, beat a good team in this uh, bowl game, make it 20, what, 26 straight, and uh, at that point, I know it's going to be pretty, it's going to be close to impossible for people to keep, uh, you know, especially SEC fans, because SEC fans are the ones that seem to have. For, for some odd reason that I can't put my finger on, feel like really threatened by UCF and hate the idea that they are referring to themselves as national champions and whatnot. This is their chance to do it again on a national stage. I mean, what do you think the, the image of UCF's program will be if for a second straight year they go to a New Year's Six Bowl and beat a top 10 team from a Power 5 conference? Yeah, I, I thought what they did over the weekend was pretty impressive, given no Mackenzie Milton. They were down by a lot to an explosive offensive team and still won. You know, while we're talking about it, one guy who I, who's done a much better job than I thought he would is Josh Heupel, their head coach. I, I thought there would be some drop-off. I didn't think they'd fall apart right away. But he's done a, he's done a much better job than I thought he would in year one, replacing Scott Frost, obviously dealing with, with now the really – devastating injury to Mackenzie Milton um, and to win that game it speaks to not just the, the leadership in that locker room among the players but to what he's done so that was impressive that really was I, I did I thought they'd get knocked off and they didn't and I think they deserve a ton of credit and they're another reason why I want to see an 18 playoff I think they deserve a spot I don't think I, I'm not sure I'd pick them to win but like you said 
nobody, you know, Georgia was a big underdog last year. Ohio State was a he was a big underdog to Alabama, and they beat them a few years ago. So I don't know. They play the games. That's why they play the games, and that's what it should be about. If you deserve a spot, and I think they do. If there were an 18 playoff, I don't know why we would have even bothered to play the Alabama Georgia game yesterday because they'd both be in. But that's a that's a whole other topic for another day when you have more than four minutes. Is there anybody you want to give a shout out to? Uh, yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to Scott Satterfield in App State. I mean, they consistently win, and I don't know if he's going to get hired away from them this week. There's some job opportunities that I feel like he and Neil Brown should be arm wrestling over, and they should be getting them. But uh, I think. You should be happy that, that UNC decided to hire Mac Brown and not him. I mean, he is a terrific coach, and they keep winning. They haven't been in, you know, for a lot of people, they know that school and that program because once upon a time, they upset Michigan when they were an FCS team and a really successful FCS program at that point. But just keep winning games. And I just don't think, I mean, programs like that, and there are very few that are, quote, like that. But I just don't think they get enough attention for what they're able to do consistently in evaluating and developing players. And when you look at programs that that struggle with much more resources, it's because they don't do a good enough job with that. So shout out to App State. They got a good thing going. And I suspect they'll have a good thing going even if somebody smartens up and tries to hire him away. But right now it's it's impressive what they've been able to do. While we're at it, let's do double the shout outs because I think – there may be no more impressive. You've talked about Bill Snyder before. How about Bill Clark coming into a program that had literally been shut down, or he was at a program that got shut down for two years and comes back, and within the second season back, UAB is your Conference USA champion. That's just absolutely incredible. And I'd also like to give a shout-out to Jeff Tedford, who came into a Fresno State team last year that had gone 1-11 and the year before, takes them to the conference championship game last year, and this year they go to Boise and they beat Boise State on their home turf, Fresno State, Mountain West champs. How do you feel about that? I feel like he has quietly done a terrific job, and I'm glad you went there. One last thing. we I can't believe we never hadn't the Pac-12 championship game Friday night. You and I were both there, and um, I had a pretty critical column that came out of it. I made my thoughts clear on that. That was one of the most depressing atmospheres I've ever seen. There was a Rose Bowl berth at stake in the stadium. You know, the, the upper deck is tarped off. There's maybe 20,000 fans in the stands, you know, to kind of, and it was an ugly, I mean, it was, it wasn't an ugly game if you love defense, but it was 10 to three, no offensive touchdowns. You were on the field. What I mean, describe it. I'm probably not the right person to ask on it just because in the middle of it, I'm on the Washington sideline because I was doing that part of it. Petros was on the Utah sideline for Fox, but there's a lot of energy for it. So you feel it. And I think maybe it's almost like I, the first, the first half was a sluggish, sluggish showing, but it there was a lot of drama to the game. It was a pretty intense game. It was the best tackling game I've seen this season. So I'm not going to try to tell you that it was a, that it was a wild, you know, back and forth game. But there, it, I think for a lot of people going, okay, they want to see offense. It was, it was that. I'm not trying to tell you it was like the LSU-Alabama field goal game. But it, from that point, to me, a bigger picture is I'm waiting for, for uh, Kyle Whittingham and loser, outside the loser's locker room for our interview. And I hear Petros introduce Larry Scott, and I just hear <laughs> – a cascade of booze that would never end. And I think, you know, to go back to John Canzano's series in the Oregonian last week about all of the Pac-12 issues, it's just the one thing that comes up is there's just a feeling here, and the word comes back to me, is tone deaf. 
And, uh, you know, they have, they have real issues and just like the focus the things they focus in on are just kind of a little bit head scratchers. So I, I don't know. I, I think there's two separate things that go on here. One is why is the product on the field being the teams, you know, Washington is a top 10 team. I think the Rose Bowl matchup of that defense, especially though that great defensive backfield against Dwayne Haskins is a, was one of the best bowl matchups we're going to get. But the rest of the Pac-12, and we know USC has their issues and everything, and that's that's a story for another podcast. But one and eight before in the in the bowls last time out, and I think that what's on the field, I think some of that's cyclical. I think they have really good coaches in the league. I would argue that they probably have four or five of the top twenty coaches in college football who work in the conference. But right now, there's been a little bit of. It's it's lagged, and I, I'm sure Chip Kelly will get it going at UCLA, and that's one of the places and 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 whatnot. But so you have the problems of how the league is run, and then you have the problems problems of how the teams are playing right now. Where Washington's good, and everybody else is is kind of trying to get it figured out. That's exactly right. You know, there's so much angst in the among Pac-12 fans right now with Larry Scott. His press conference I went to before the game was entire almost entirely questions about. The stuff that came out, I wouldn't say came out, the stuff that was focused on in John's series. You had a, a ridiculous officiating scandal this year that I'm still not sure they grasped the enormity of. He's having to justify why his salary is so high and why they spend so much on office space and all these things. So those are legitimate issues that the leadership of the conference is responsible for. But Larry Scott's not the reason there were two bowl-eligible teams in the Pac-12 South this year, right? He's not the reason nobody could finish 10-2. and two. It's just... Conferences have up years and conferences have down years, and they have had unquestionably a couple down years the last two years. Uh, USC imploding did not help. Oregon is still trying to rebuild from the uh, end of the Mark Helfrich era, et cetera, et cetera. Stanford, you know, credit, they beat Cal, they finished eight and four. That's not where they were a couple years ago. So I think it's kind of a transition time in that conference, but uh, they've got some questions to ask in terms of just that championship game itself. You know, I would think. They've got to think about moving that to Vegas when the new stadium opens because that that is not a Power 5 conference championship atmosphere. Agreed. Agreed. Stu, I think we have to run. Well, You've got to go to the airport. To You've got to go schmooze with people in New York this week That as the college football world convenes in, in New York City. I understand. The next time, look, there's a break in the action. The next time we do a podcast, we can go into as much detail as you want about playoff games, other bowl games. And, uh, of course, send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. We'll load up on those as well. See you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Audible at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. And we'd like to thank Kevin and the Octas for our intro song, Dangerous. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, what are you waiting for? Read both myself and Bruce and all our other great writers there, go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and get 25% off. You can also follow our coverage at The Athletic CFB. You can follow me at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. We'll see you next time.